0: listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host for today, Kevin Citek. But wait a second, where's Peter Banditini? Don't worry, Peter is still here on the podcast today, but this time as a guest. Over the 39 episodes of this podcast, Dr. Bandettini has guided interesting conversations with brain scientists of all types about the latest developments, controversies, findings, and challenges in the field of brain mapping. Of course, Dr. Bandettini is an impressive and fascinating scientist in his own right, so we on the Neurosalience production team thought it was time to turn things around and shine the spotlight on Peter. So, who is Peter Bandettini? At the National Institute of Mental Health, Dr. Bandettini is chief of the section on functional imaging methods, as well as director of the Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Core Facility and director of the Center for Multimodal Neuroimaging. Peter received a bachelor's degree in physics from Marquette University and his PhD from the Medical College of Wisconsin, where his dissertation was on magnetic resonance imaging of human brain activation using endogenous susceptibility contrast, so basically functional MRI. Peter then did postdoctoral training at the Massachusetts General Hospital Nuclear Magnetic Resonance Center and Harvard Medical School, before returning to the Medical College of Wisconsin as assistant professor. In 1999, Dr. Banditini moved to the National Institute of Mental Health, where he's been ever since. Peter's contributions to science cannot be overstated. As of this recording, his research has been cited almost 44,000 times with five of his papers having over 2,000 citations. 10 of his papers have over 1,000 citations, and 20 have over 500 citations. Dr. Bandettini has also written the book on functional MRI, published by MIT Press, entitled, appropriately, FMRI. Peter has been highly involved in the Organization for Human Brain Mapping since, essentially, the beginning, including serving as president as well as program chair and he currently sits on the Scientific Advisory Board for the organization. Peter is also a fellow of the International Society for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine, where he was awarded the ISMRM Gold Medal in 2020, and he was previously the editor-in-chief of the journal NeuroImage, along with serving as associate editor for that journal and many others. Through all of this, Dr. Bandettini has advised numerous grad students and postdocs, some of whom you'll hear about in today's episode. We'll hear about Peter's approach to mentorship, to science in general, and to science communication, as well as much, much more. We hope that you've enjoyed the podcast so far, and we really hope that you enjoy today's very special episode. All right, Peter Banditini, welcome to the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. I feel like you've been here before.
1: Yeah, I've been here before, but never in uh, in this context, um, being the recipient of the questions. But uh, look forward to it.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I mean, listeners will be very familiar with with uh, all of your interviews and great discussions over the past uh, uh, year or so—about forty episodes so far. Uh, and those of us on the podcast team just thought that it would be great to actually hear uh, some of your motivations and and your approach to science and. And maybe how this podcast is shaped a little bit about what you like and, uh, and how you conduct science in the field. Um, right. Well, listeners of the podcast will know just how, how deeply you understand and, and care about such a wide variety of topics. This has come up, you know, in episode after episode, whether it's MRI physics or layer functional MRI or clinical applications. And you've also literally, literally written the book on, on fMRI. So in, in some ways, you're, you're the OHBM stereotype with all of these interests, the, the, the prototype of, of an OHBM member. But uh, I'll ask the question that you usually ask your guests when they first come on the show. How did you get started?
1: Yeah, um, well, uh, so, you know, if you go way back, um, you know, I've always, I've always been, I think that um, talking with my, my parents, specifically my, my dad was, uh, he was a teacher, uh, taught psychology. Um, I, you know, He'd always have dinner table conversations about the brain and how we don't know anything about it, how it's really mysterious. And, and that kind of piqued my interest a little bit. Uh, and, and I was always interested in, in the brain, but I also had an interest in other, you know the hard sciences like physics and engineering. Um, also in high school, there was uh, a uh, sort of a, I don't know, I would almost say a defining moment when I was looking through a... I think it was late high school or or mid high school. I was looking through a scientific American and it was all about the brain. And it showed some of those first like xenon CT or PET uh, images of, of the brain uh, at work, either, you know, language or reading. And that just totally fascinated me. And just to be able to, to peer into this process of, of what makes us human, you know, the, the, the workings uh, of our, of ourselves. And so, so then I was intrigued by that, but then, uh, you know, in college, I I was thinking of going into medical school, that, uh, but I, I majored in physics and uh, thought I would like, you know, I thought I was sort of hedging my bets a little bit trying to do physics, but then interested in in uh, uh, applications or the brain in some way. Um, finally, in graduate school, I, I was in a graduate program in biophysics. I was immediately trying to find a thesis project using MRI uh, to look for... Uh, some signature of brain function, because, you know, typically it, when I got into graduate school in, uh, you know, 1989, um, you know, you looked at MRI, you couldn't tell the difference between, a, uh, you know, whether that was a, a living person or a dead person. And, you know, there was some hints that maybe spectroscopy might work, or what's called what was called chemical shift imaging. Uh, early on, uh, you know, Levy Hon came out with his uh, intravoxel incoherent motion, which was kind of exciting, uh, thinking that maybe changes in diffusion might mimic, it might look like perfusion. And so I was trying to do that. I teamed up with, with I think the, probably the most important person in my career uh, was Eric Wong. And uh, uh, I teamed up with him. He uh, was already working on things that were involving, you know, high-speed imaging, like echo planar imaging. None of the scanners had echo planar imaging. So he programmed it up from scratch. We, used, we built from scratch a local head gradient coil uh, so that we could actually do echo planar imaging, drive the gradients that fast. And, you know, we got some first hints of, uh, of results from the NGH group uh, in this meeting in San Francisco in 1991 and uh, immediately came back and, and replicated the results pretty quickly within a month. And uh, since then, wow. um, I not only found a thesis project, but, um, you know, it's sort of uh, define my career, which I've I've always feel like I'm I was kind of lucky uh, to be in the right place at the right time to sort of merge these you know my interest in physics and also MRI and then and then understanding the brain. So that's kind uh, of the, the the abbreviated version of my <laughs> history.
0: Yeah, it's a great great story and we heard a little bit about it in a, a previous episode earlier this season. Uh, but you're saying so you actually, came in to the field wanting to set up basically functional MRI. So that was one of your goals from the outset before fMRI even existed then.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's kind of strange. I mean, I, it's sort of a strange thing how, how that works. Um, Yeah. I, when I came in, I really wanted to look at brain function and the main tool in my department was this MR scanner. And I was trying to figure out, you know, any way possible of, of looking at human brain function, uh, uh, whatever it might be. And so that was my goal. I was having a hard time actually. I mean, certainly, you know, as a first and second year graduate student, having that sort of goal, um, you know, everyone else had these projects and they were trying to plug me into various things, which was fine. Um, and I, but I was struggling because I didn't quite have a project. Uh, and, and then finally, you know, this came along and, uh, it was, a little bit of serendipity and, and there was at some point you know when echoplanar was possible i thought well maybe it would be great if we could actually image brain function i wasn't even thinking necessarily along these lines but imaging brain function along the lines that along this the temporal resolution at which you can collect echoplanar images one after the other uh and i was thinking you know, somehow there must be some signature in in that because nobody you know nobody in the field actually thought that much about making movies other than like cardiac or or things like that but Um, and so nobody actually really tried that hard. I mean, there were a number of people like, you know, as we talked about other podcasts, Bob Turner, Ravi Menon, um, who were looking at the time course of things, uh, but not many, and it was kind of wide open and it was one of those serendipitous things that probably could have been discovered maybe, maybe five, 10 years before, but nobody really looked hard. Uh, susceptibility contrast is pretty, pretty robust, uh, and, and Bold luckily just worked. And uh, so, yeah, so it was a little bit of serendipity. I kind of felt that there was a, high, I felt pretty strongly. I remember even telling people before I yeah. began that Echo Planar was, uh, uh, maybe has some potential of doing that, but uh, it worked out. And, yeah. And, uh, <laughs>
0: Yeah. I love it. I love it that you just came into grad school with the idealism of the uh, the, the <laughs> young grad student who sees something. It's like you know, I think this will work, and and you know, a few months later, you you have fMRI running, and and thirty years later, you're still working in fMRI and just improving it in in every possible way. What do you see as some of the biggest changes in the field since, yeah, that was 30 years ago that your first uh, fMRI paper came out?
1: Yeah, yeah. I thought about this the other day. Just before I get into that, I just want to mention that it's it was a unique graduate program. Just also, first of all, it was important. So my my I had two advisors, Jim Hyde and Scott Hinks, and it's important that you know some advisors, and and we're all limited by this. We have to we have projects that we want to plug into. Jim just sort of said, hey, you know, this is the these are the tools. Just Uh, do whatever you feel is best and I'll give advice. And so that was lucky that I was in that situation as well, that I can sort of, you know, try to find things. But anyway, as far as the the field of fMRI is concerned, um, oh God, you know, uh, so I thought about this the other day um, when I was, you know, writing some chapter or something, and I'm trying to, I, I was, I was realizing that, you know, in its essence, it, in its essence, it hasn't really changed that much. I mean, when we first collected data, we used a, a scanner, we did echo planar imaging with bold contrast. Our voxels were a little bit bigger. They're like three millimeter size voxels. Um, you know, we still, we just, you know, we did a task. We looked at the signal change and, and we came up with ways of pulling out that signal and mapping it. Um, what has changed? So there's been a lot of changes obviously, is that, uh, Uh, you know, the field strengths have gone up, uh, the, the, uh, what we know about the signal has increased tremendously. I mean, there was even back then though, we worried about veins, um, and that died away, but then now it's creeping back up. As we go to high resolution, it becomes more of an issue. The overall usage of fMRI has, you know, obviously exploded because, and a key thing there is that unlike other imaging techniques like Meg or other other ones fmri sort of leveraged the fact that there were so many scanners around anyway so it just uh, used all those and exploded it's like it was as as if you know uh we suddenly came along and and realized you know we could use our cars uh for you know airplanes or something and then if you just did one minor tweak and then suddenly everyone has airplanes uh it was kind of like that so with the scanner um you know you you could you could suddenly do fMRI with all these scanners. So everyone, so the field exploded uh, with usage. So that's, that changed a lot, but then there's been a lot of, you know, breakthroughs, you know, resting state was huge uh, uh, coming along. Uh, 1995 yeah. brought Biswell, found that. It took about 10 years for the field to fully embrace it. But, um, uh, but I think the main thing that's, that's really changed is, is the level of, of sophistication of our analyses so, still, most people use bold contrast. Still, um, there might be better ways of getting higher resolution, you know, multi-band and you know things like that. But um, the level of analysis, though, is uh, was is, is much more sophisticated. The level of pre-processing, uh, you know, now we're doing you know uh, all types of you know pattern effect mapping, uh, you know, uh, various types of uh, dimensionality reduction techniques uh you know the questions are becoming more sophisticated the the whole all the network analysis of of, of fmi is sort of taken off and it's not clear how far it will go but it's right now it's really taking off um and the, another thing that hasn't changed that much though is that you know the clinical applications are there a little bit but we're still trying to make more inroads uh, for clinical applications so that's kind of Yeah, um, in a nutshell, (laughs) how it's evolved. I mean, certainly it's taken over. It's become a believed tool and a useful tool for most cognitive neuroscientists. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it's it's, it's now like, you know, it's the backbone of most of what OHBM does. I mean, certainly other techniques are growing and I hope they do even more so, Uh, but still fMRI with bold contrast is is what we do uh, for the most part. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's awesome to hear your perspective on, on what's happened basically since the beginning and since you're still so uh, you're still at the forefront of all of this, what do you see? Like you've talked about uh, so many of these analysis approaches. What do you see as being the next challenge that you think that FMRI will be able to tackle and overcome over the next 10 years or so?
1: Ah, that's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, certainly, uh, there'll be, uh, so the big, you know, what I'm, there's certain things I'm, I'm sort of excited about. I think that there's still, uh, more information in the time series than we've been able to robustly extract. Mm -hmm. I think we can, I think we can also get rid of more of the artifacts like the respiration effects and things like that. I think we can get rid of, um, I think that, uh, uh, we're just really beginning to, to look carefully at, at the uh the network properties uh uh derived from you know using network analysis with with time series fMRI. I think that uh that has a lot, right. a lot of work to go. Um uh incorporating that into, you know, into models and uh that to, to make more insights. I do think actually the you know the big elephant in the room is the clinical applications and uh that's a huge challenge, and, and a big challenge is, is simply that the, as robust as fMRI is for looking at, you know, brain function, uh, the, uh, the effect size is, is relatively small, and the variability from subject to subject mm. is somewhat large, and so to get any sort of meaningful biomarkers, you need a lot of data, and, and then it's, the question is still out. Let's say you do get biomarkers. Can you really use those? Put a subject in the scanner and say, "Oh, you're a member of this distribution or not?" With one subject, Uh, that's still an open question.
0: Yeah, right. When will we feel confident? Yeah, uh, yeah, we're making the right assessment there.
1: Yeah, but also, I think that that another clinical application that's kind of a low-hanging fruit is is um, you know, once neuromodulation gets more popular, like you know, using TMS in a very focused way for disease, it shows a lot of promise you definitely need fMRI to just show, you know, where the landmarks would be and where the areas would be to, to guide TMS. So that that's a huge clinical application that's waiting, I think. A few people are working on that already, obviously. Um, but yeah, the big challenges are, and also the big challenges would be to have a little bit more, you know, layer fMRI I'm, is, is near and dear to my heart and uh, doing whole brain layer fMRI mm-hmm. in which you could actually interpret the results, uh, you know, having, you know, input and output at specific areas and showing that will kind of rewrite the landscape in many ways and, and what fMRI could do, what 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 how deeply it can address these questions of neural circuitry. Um, so that's has potential. A lot of work to, that needs to be done to really get that properly uh, working. <laughs> you know, right now, you know, we're we have. About five people working on layer fMRI Marai, and we're all struggling like crazy uh, just to just with the analysis pipelines, just to make sense of what we see. So that has mm-hmm. a lot of work to be done. It's very different than the early days where you saw a blob, and and, uh, and that was great. It's <laughs> so yeah. So how did
0: uh, how did the the um, transition come for you, or when did you start getting interested in the laminar? Potential for fMRI, or I guess depth-dependent fMRI.
1: Yeah. Um, well, well, I've always been interested. I mean, my so part of my what I do, you know, I'm lucky at the NIH where I can sort of straddle, you know, be right at the methods, the limits. So I've always tried to push the temporal resolution, how deeply we can interpret the functional MRI signal in terms of temporal resolution, and also I've always been trying to push the spatial resolution, and and I became more interested. Honestly, I, I think much of my research is driven by the postdocs that I choose. Um, you know, I, I sort of have something in mind which I think is interesting. And then I put out an application, uh, you know, a job opening for postdocs and then I find them. And then, then i usually try to sort of triangulate between what their interests are and what mine are. And, you know, um, and this was, that's what happened earlier with um, Nico kragas He was a postdoc of mine, very interested in pattern effect mapping. I became suddenly, you know, Amazingly interested in that, and so he just took off with that, and that was really great. Uh, and for layer fMRI, uh, I believe it was it was you know already maybe five years ago. Um, you know, time is sort of distorted by COVID, but I think yeah, around 2017 or or no longer <laughs> than that, longer than that. Um, yeah, uh, when I saw Renzo give a talk uh, showing some early early work on, on layer fMRI in the motor cortex. Uh, He was working with Bob Turner at the time at Max Planck. And I'm like, I'm going to, you know, he's great. I'm going to try to recruit him. And I was able to recruit him to my group. And, and then it took off with Renzo. Um, I just gave him complete room to work and develop things and and try things and kept on, you know, my, my style with postdocs is I I let them go. And then I, you know, give feedback and point in different directions here and there. But um, that that's when it took off. And Renzo's was amazing. Uh, uh, and yeah, and I think it's still, you know, sometimes we have dead ends. I mean, sometimes there are dead ends in other areas, uh, like trying to push the temper resolution it was got kind of difficult and, uh, i still think there's still work to be done there, but, but layer of Mariah, I haven't really, I, I have no reason to believe that, that it won't work in many, many more places in many more contexts. So, um, so that's when it got started, I guess. Yeah somewhere in the late teens of yeah, 2017 or something like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. That you can be so inspired by the, uh, the, the earlier career scientists that are coming through your group. And, and that hints at, a actually the next question I wanted to ask was about how you, you know, after, a, uh, and with, with such a fruitful career so far and going forward, how do you, um, get inspired for new questions. And I think part of it is what you've just described of uh, inviting people to your lab who are doing exciting things and working with them, triangulating to, to form some new scientific questions. But do you take any other sort of like top-down approach to how you formulate your next scientific questions? Do you have any sort of grand <laughs> approach like that? Or do you just go where the science takes you?
1: Um. That's a little bit of both. I mean, you almost have to do both because, uh, you know, most most questions. I mean, it, I I firmly believe that. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think that, that that I firmly believe that that you know the the the, the leverage of your work depends very much on how well formed your questions are, and and my question I usually. Uh, uh, I usually, I usually look at the entire field. Like whenever I'm reading a paper you know, or even listening to a talk, I, I usually am not taking notes about the talk or the paper, unless they have a reference for a, a paper to read or something like that. Um, I'm usually writing down what occurs to me uh, as an idea when I'm listening to the talk or reading the paper. Um, and, and that usually, usually, you know, they open up ideas of things to try. Like if I hear, like, for instance, um, like many people, you know, like Yuri Asan, for instance, an example, I remember listening to one of his talks early on of cross-subject, doing cross-subject correlation. And suddenly I, I see that and I'm like, that's a great idea. There's so many things that could be used, yeah, using that to ask different types of questions. So what I think that I have a, a kind of a, maybe a, maybe a skill um, and it's always, I always try to keep on growing it is, is trying to, um, you know, take what exists and try and trying to sort of Keep on expanding, you know, my awareness at least of other work, uh, of other questions, so that I'm trying to, you know, fit the methods in with the questions and and ask the more meaningful questions. So it's, it's so easy to fall into a rut, like especially if you're a methods person. Uh, it's and this is what I always talk to my group about is that it's so easy to ask a methods question like, oh, how can we maybe do that a little better? Um, and those are certainly legitimate questions, but. But really, uh, and this is why, yeah, and really the, the, the question should be more along the line of, you know, how, how can we do something, you know, totally different? How can we ask a very different question using, you know, some twist on a technique uh, that, that we can take it further? Uh, so I usually try to make sure they don't lose the forest for the trees. And it's so, you know, once again, it's, there's a place for, like incremental development, which I think is important, but at the same time, I think it's always important to think of ways you could uh, uh, use methods in different ways, or or try something totally different uh, with them. Uh, you know, right? Yeah. So, so I guess that's sort of summary. I, I don't know if I really hit on the head exactly what I do, but I I'm always just trying to, you know, put things together and and try to. I'm always pushing myself to ask you know what would be uh the right the question that this tech how far can this technique go um you know uh mm. things like that so yeah
0: that that's awesome to hear yeah it's just such a critical piece to just keep on looking for the new application looking for you know how we can push things a little bit more and and what that opens up that's 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 great so I wanted to ask a little bit about the podcast. I hinted at this a little bit earlier, but uh, you've been running this podcast for, uh, say, over a year. Uh, You had some previous podcast experience too. Uh, Has there been any way through the conversations you've had through this podcast, has your outlook on science changed at all, your outlook on the field, on what's important in the field? Uh, Has anything shifted for you like as a result of running this podcast and talking to so many uh, uh, new people and, and old friends?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I like to, to say that, you know, it's certainly, it, it's been, you know, it's, it's way more work than I expected it to be. And, uh, uh, you know, cause every, every week or two, I have to do my homework on, on the person. Sometimes it's super easy uh, just because it's part of, you know, what's what I know, but other times it's, it's really uh, hard to, 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 get up to speed enough to feel like you can ask meaningful questions. Uh, So, and I think that, and and that's actually part of the reason why I did the podcast, why I wanted one of the reasons why I want to do the podcast, not only because I I really, I I enjoy asking questions. I enjoy engaging people um, and, and having a a back and forth. It it comes to me naturally. I I really like doing it. Uh, Maybe I'm still not that good at it, but I'm getting, I I like to think I'm improving, Um, but I do, uh, I, it, what has really helped me is it really has, I mean, you know everyone has their list of papers that they want to read and and there's right. something about uh, having to you know having a podcast deadline after two weeks on someone that forces you to, to study their papers in a way that you wouldn't otherwise uh, and really get kind of on top of the field and and kind of and, and that aspect of things to sort of be able to, to ask the right questions. And I think it's, you know, personally, I think it's helped my own science because I, you know, suddenly, you know, one week clinical applications will become, you know, this sharpened in, fo- in you know, the focus will, will sharpen the breath. It's, it's like a camera, yeah. you know, it's like the, the breath will increase and, and you'll kind of have a good sense of what is the state of clinical applications? What's the state of network neuroscience? What's the state of, of all kinds of things like that? Um, the replication problem and whatever. And I think that uh, that's helped me a lot. Um, I also think I also have a, uh, I just read the other day and it was really a good insight is that one thing unique about conversation is that, uh, you know, usually when you're only thinking on your own, your, your thoughts kind of are transient and they don't really get ratcheted forward in uh, that much. uh, You know, when you're just thinking about things on your own, you can think about them unless you really are disciplined conversations unique in humans is that, you know, we're, we're all, we're focused on a thought or set of thoughts or ideas, and we're going back and forth uh, you know, for however long it is an hour and we're really making progress in keeping our thoughts focused on the issue and and going forward. So I think that's really powerful. Uh, I would recommend even, Mm -hmm. you know, It's helped me, but I think in general, having conversations uh, with other people about ideas is way more helpful. I think than just, you know, certainly it's there's a place for thinking on your own, but but having conversations is is very very it's focusing and it's and it keeps you focused on something for a long longer period of time than you would otherwise. So it's useful. So, yeah,
0: yeah, a lot of the fun. That's a lot of the fun of uh, you know conferences and just meeting new people and uh, talking about the the science, figuring out some way that uh, you know what what they do, you didn't think it would ap- apply to your research at all, but suddenly making that connection and building into something even bigger.
1: Yeah, and you realize everyone's everyone's struggling. You know, we're all
0: mm-hmm. we're all
1: even the people who are absolutely on the top of the field who write these beautiful papers. We're still struggling mm-hmm. with you know the limits of what we can do, the limits of what we might try, the questions. Uh, everyone's at that edge and you know, the people who can actually dance at that edge, you know, the best are, are the ones who are successful. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, um, yeah, good
0: perspective. All right. Well, we have, um, something a little bit, uh, special for you since, uh, you've been the host of this podcast for, uh, since the beginning, uh, and you also have a, a long history working with, uh, uh, a bunch of uh, great people and some great trainees so we actually uh the podcast team put out uh some feelers to some of your other colleagues and and uh trainees and we were soliciting some questions we thought hey what what would they like to ask peter you know uh, with a little bit of distance uh, in time or space and <laughs> <laughs> and I think we'll see a little bit of personality come out here. And uh, maybe we'll have to do a little bit of editing for some of these questions. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward. So so I'll ask you a few questions. I'll give you some space between each one. I won't tell you who asked each of these questions, who submitted these. So, so maybe a part <laughs> of your answer can be, can be guessing. Uh, Try to guess, okay. Uh, who submitted it. All right. The first one we'll start with. When your life flashed before your eyes, as it may have in a tidal cave on the Nepali coast on Kauai, what did you think about family, science, the afterlife?
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. That's awesome. Um, yeah, uh, well, just to give it a little context. Yeah, I was, um, you know, there's one of my favorite places on the planet is, is Kalalau beach on the Nepali coast of Kauai. And I was there with my, my, my fiance at the time. Uh, and yeah, she was, you know, we were trying to find a cave and we were kind of walking along the coast and we got sucked out, uh, almost sucked out to sea and she can't swim. And, um, you know, it's interesting. That is the closest I think I've come. Uh, maybe I think, uh, to, to, uh, uh, dying, I guess. (laughs) Um, and what's interesting is that is that uh, it was even there's even a, there's a secondary question related to that, and that is, I I somehow managed to hold to get hold of a rock. It was I'm being pulled out, but I barely got hold of a rock. So I was realizing I could kind of save myself. And then my fiance though was was kind of out there, uh, a, a you know a few meters being pulled out. Yeah, wow. And and then but it, that the the really interesting. Point was, you know, do I let go of this rock and <laughs> and and try to save her? Because if I don't, she's not, she's going. Um, and or do I hold on uh, to save myself? And uh, uh, it, you know, that 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 thought occurred to me, but it it, it 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 quickly, you know. Then you're just an impulse was to save her, um, and you just do it. Mm-hmm. And but I. It was. I held on to it long enough to know that, you know, this is what I'm. Uh, this is what I'm doing. I'm. I'm. I'm giving up my safety uh, to to save my fiance. And, um, yeah, it was intense. It wow. was very intense. And and yeah, I managed to get out there, and she managed to hold on to me. And uh, and then at that point, it was just. Uh, it, you weren't thinking that much. You were just doing whatever it takes to, to get back to, to shore. And it took us about 45 minutes. Um, I eventually was able to, uh, get beyond the, the, um, the riptide and kind of move back, but, uh, but it was, it was touch and go, uh, for a, a little while. And it's funny because we even tried, you know, jokingly afterwards when we were back, um, we tried to, to to simulate the thing, you know, having her hold on to me and me swim. And, uh, <laughs> I could barely do it for like, you know, three minutes and somehow I did it for 45 minutes, you know, when she, <laughs> when she was holding on to me. But yeah, that, that's, that's perspective building. Uh, and that, and not much really that the key thing was, was the moment in which I let go of the rock to to go after her uh, was, was stood out in my head. The rest was just a blur of just trying to survive. And, and so I didn't really think of much else, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's incredible! <laughs> yeah,
0: do you uh do you have any guesses as to who may have uh, asked you this question? Maybe an old colleague, uh, old friend.
1: Oh man, who who could have asked that? I mean, I I don't even, I forgot who I even told that story. I told it to a number of people. Um, yeah, I don't I don't
0: know. I can't. I can give you a hint here. It's uh it's somebody who has been on the podcast. Oh, maybe even multiple times.
1: Oh, uh, was it? I guess that would narrow it down pretty much. Was it? Was it Ravi Menon, or was it? Uh, no. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was that was <laughs> Ravi Menon submitted right. that question. Yeah, Ravi and I both love Hawaii. He's he's actually, I think he he grew up some of his time in Hawaii. So, okay. yeah, yeah, we we talk about the the riptide. Uh, it's dangerous. I, I mean, it really is, and you don't realize it. Uh, <laughs> you're walking along and you're Uh you know you know it's funny we were just kind of walking along the water was up to our neck and we're like oh we're just going to get around this cliff and then it picked us up and pulled us out so okay good Ravi. all right
0: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah he's giving us all a little bit of extra insight into uh into Peter Banditini now so thank you (laughs) Ravi. uh we'll we'll move on to this next question, which uh, depending which direction it goes may may need some editing, uh, but I think it'll be good, too. All right. This is great. So the question the question is, uh, what is the closest you've gotten to getting arrested when interviewing a postdoc?
1: (laughs) That was Kevin Murphy, right? Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Yeah, that's fortunately only
1: once. Yeah, there's only one that stands out there. That was awesome. that was great. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so the NIH is a is a very strict you know, sort of a strict place. Uh, we have our campus and we have our uh, I think that was right after you know you know with after 9/11 things security was pretty high. they have their the rules and it's a dry campus uh, you don't there's no alcohol on a campus and and Kevin mm-hmm. being uh, coming from Ireland, you know it's sort of a customary thing to, to bring some, uh, uh scotch or or whiskey or whatever you know the uh he was bringing and it, you know it was normal um uh and so he was trying to bring it in on on his first go and uh security stopped him and and he's like oh well okay i guess i'll uh do whatever and and i think i intercepted them at some point and said i oh, want you just come in the side doors here um and <laughs> you know you know it was thinking nothing that much of it. And uh, uh, he came in the side doors and apparently security saw him do all this. And they, and somehow they, while I was literally talking to him in my office, I get a call and they were saying, they basically said, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, do you have, is Kevin Murphy in your office? And I'm like, yeah. And, and uh, like, okay, well, you know, we'll be down. And uh, I'm like, oh, what is this about? It's like, oh, well, you know, they, they brought something, in and, and I think I remember with my, with the, the secretary at the time, you know, we quickly, you know, we're like, Oh, okay. So quickly I jumped out of my office and said, you know, security is coming, you know, let's hide, let's hide the alcohol. <laughs> and so we, we found it, we found a place to hide it. And, uh, um, and they came down. Number were, one.
0: Yeah. Do the important things first.
1: <laughs> save the alcohol. Now, it, and, uh, yeah, um, they, they, uh, they came down and, and they, they warned they didn't do any, I mean, they didn't actually do anything and they didn't search for the alcohol or confiscate it. They basically said, well, you know, that's very serious. You shouldn't do this. And, um, uh, and we were very apologetic and we understood, I mean, it's not like we're going to, you know, suddenly, you know, have a, throw a party or something. Um, but uh, so they understood the context and the context. And that's the thing with this. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny now that I've been there for a number of years it would be less, I would just kind of like automatically say, oh, well, you know, we'll get it some other day or that's okay. Just, you know, but, uh, then I was, I don't know. I just <laughs> probably wasn't the best decision on my part either, but, uh, but it was great because then, you know, Kevin has this story to, uh, uh, we all remember Kevin, uh, as far as when he started <laughs> out and, and that was, a that was, that was good. And I got to know the police officer and and everything, everything would turned out. Okay. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and yeah of course we should note that uh, it was a successful postdoc interview also
1: yes it was yes it was <laughs> kevin was was awesome uh kevin is awesome and uh, uh uh yeah he did he did a lot of great things and and um yeah uh was was one of those people who just kind of came in and didn't have anything specific planned but he actually really cranked in certain things i mean specifically you know a number of things but one of them was Uh, writing kind of the definitive paper on whether to do global regression or not. Uh, And that, that was Kevin's paper. Uh, He did other things too. And he, he has a nice paper thinking very clearly about how long to scan based on signals, noise and whatever. And now he's really getting into the physiology and he's doing a great job. So yeah, I really like Kevin. Kevin keeps me honest too. He's, his Irish wit uh, always knocks me down a few notches, (laughs) which, uh, which is always good. (laughs)
0: All right. That's awesome. That's such a cool story. (laughs) Pretty (laughs) unique story for you. Yeah. Great to hear. Okay. So uh, here's, we have, I think, two more questions here. So this one might be a little tougher to to guess, but I'll I'll let you guess too. But the question is uh, a little bit more broadly. What do you think is the right balance between staying on top of the literature in your own ever-changing subfield versus keeping up with new ideas from broader realms in neuroscience or psychology or other related fields? And does that balance change over the course of your career? I guess has it, and and do you think uh do you think it should?
1: Yeah. Um, so I I feel like uh, I don't even I don't even know if the word balance is is the right word. In some sense, it's sort of like along the lines of, you know, you have this this uh, this meta balance of of constantly going between not lack of equilibrium but sort of you know so I think the idea is in sort of, sort of the analogy would be maybe uh, you know they, they purposely designed like fighter planes to be unstable so that they are more adaptable in some sense hmm. uh, and and i think that uh, that i think on on one level you need to you definitely need to to know your domain uh, deeply and uh, and so you need, you need to do your best to sort of keep up on the literature, uh, at least the relevant literature. It's hard to know what the relevant literature is, but to to sort of keep reading it and keep thinking and keep looking and reading the latest papers. Uh, That said, uh, without a doubt, uh, you'll have more, uh, you'll have more ideas come to you and more flexibility if you do purposely try to, you know, read outside your field. Um, You know, a great example is, is someone like Ravi actually, now that I'm thinking of him is that, you know, he's a physicist, but you know, he regularly goes to SFN and he purposely tries to learn things that he knows nothing about. And sometimes it helps, uh, it always helps in some way, but sometimes it really adds to certain ideas and there's certain things like, um, like I was just reading another paper, just skimming it the other day of, uh, resting state fMRI. I mean, you know, uh, Spontaneous activity in the brain has been known for long before resting fMRI uh, began, and just understanding kind of what they observed uh, can lend insight. Or even, or even things like you know, if I'm just looking at the signal and reading about fMRI and and things like that, I wouldn't really appreciate that uh, you know the interesting interaction between inhibition, excitation, adaptation, and things like that. That that signal still might be in the fMRI signal. reading those papers sort of primes me to sort of think, Oh, how can I maybe pull that out? Um, so, so yeah, um, definitely balance is good. I, I would say it's important to know deeply uh, to go down the first principles as, as much as you can in your domain and, and then try to draw connections with and purposely learn other areas. Um, and it's hard, it's hard. Yeah. And it's sort of, you set yourself up to look sort of naive. And, you know, when I talk to, Deeply to neuroscientists, I'm. I, I'm. I, but I think also that as a methodologist, I can help them more because sometimes they're thinking very specifically about a problem, uh, but they're not really thinking about how to use fMRI to answer that problem because they don't really know okay. what the nuances are. And so, talking to those people a lot, I think is really useful, not only for, for myself but for them as well. So, so yeah, and yeah, like for instance, Renzo Huber when he came to my group, uh, I, I, I forced him to well, I don't really force him. I mean, I didn't really have to force him to do anything, but I, I encouraged him strongly to go to SFN. Uh, you know, if you're going to do layer of MRI, you better, you better get it familiar yeah. with that whole ecosystem that's been around for years. And so, right, and he did that and that was great. So Yeah.
0: It makes it so much more impactful when you know the actual biophysical biological principles that you're, you're, you're recording and, and it can really help validate what you're, what you're actually finding. And, and, I'm guessing it, it drove some directions for him and for your group also to have that sort of information.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it really has. Um, yeah, and there's even things that, uh, right, and also we're sort of more aware. We're not just blindly saying, oh, that layer F will just work. I mean, there's a lot of very, very good neuroscientists who say, well, you know, you can't quite resolve layer five and that's important because of this. And and so you have to sort of step back and think how deeply do, can we interpret this signal? Um, and that, that helps. Uh, you know, refine your thinking on that uh, as, as far as that's concerned. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I can't guess who asked that question because I think, yeah, it's a general question. It's hard to know exactly who would be asking that. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: There, there, there's a follow-up. I don't know if it'll have many, many more hints, but uh, the follow-up is, so uh, how do you determine whether something like a new acquisition method or an analysis method or a new theory How do you determine if it's something that has real staying power or if it's just a passing trend? Is that something that you're able to discern or do you just go with it and find where it leads and change course if it doesn't work out?
1: Yeah, that's actually, that's a really hard one. Um, And I do this all the time when I'm looking at, uh, you know, my postdocs data, you know, I'm trying to look at it and think, oh, is this, is this worth going further with? Is this, Um, and, and I think that that you know, from, ex- from ex- the experience of, of looking at it, I think, you know, you always have to, you have to look at your data. And I think you get, uh, even beyond the statistics, uh, you have to, you kind of get a sense of whether things uh, look good, like they look like they're fruitful, based on, you know, how noisy things are, or, uh, you know, how repeatable they are, even with your N of like five or something, you get a sense of how th- much things might work. Like there's a couple of other um, uh, layer of my techniques, and uh, they look good, uh, but they don't uh, quite look as good as 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 Vaso looks. Uh, you know, Vaso is a, um, and you know, it's like I'm still like you know, the, and I they want you know I know they want uh, you know me to say hey this is great this is the same as Vaso this might be better and I can't say that because I haven't quite seen the. Uh, the, the, the true comparison to show like the sense of uh higher signal to noise. And I, I, you know, it's funny because it usually that those would be statistical questions that should just be obvious, but, but I feel like it's not, I actually think that you kind of have to tons of experiences looking at the data and getting a sense of whether this is something that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, pursuable. What I tend to do a lot. I mean, this is, I'm sort of known in some sense. I I usually uh, like to throw out sort of kind of crazy ideas to just try things. Um, I'm very much Mm of an empiricist in that sense. I'm like, oh, what, you know, one of my favorite lines from my colleague Eric Waugh was, let's just try it. Uh, It's so easy to try things. You should just try things. So many people talk themselves out of trying things uh, before they even try it. And they usually get so much more information Mm -hmm. just trying it once or twice and seeing uh, what might work. and so I'm all for that and I'm all for like looking carefully at the data and, and going from there um, regarding bigger things, uh, you know, like, the, I mean, the latest example is, um, uh, you know, well, we already talked about layer from Rye that's, you know, that's hopeful. And I feel like that's very hopeful. Uh, it gives good preliminary results, but uh, it's still not clear to me. I'm not hundred percent convinced it's going to, it's going to pan out. Um, but I think it will. It just might take a little bit more time than what people anticipate. Um, even you know, general time series analysis. I think that's uh, uh, um, yeah. There's there's work there that I, I I you know you look at you look at the progress that's being made and you feel like this is this is robust and this will. There's a lot more that could be done with this. And um, but yeah, but there's other things too. There's other pulse sequences. There's other uh processing methods that that at some point you're just like well you know this may not be the most fruitful thing um and and you you go from there and so you try to and it just kind of dies away (laughs) but i don't know i don't know i don't have any clear heuristics for doing that other than just a lot of conversations a lot of experience a lot of looking at data a lot of looking at the raw data and uh going from there yeah
0: I'll, I'll let you take a guess if you think uh if you have any ideas who who this could be in a hint it's one of your former postdocs
1: okay uh one of my former postdocs um
0: she's now at an Ivy League college oh is
1: that Emily, em- Emily yeah that Finn? was from
0: from Emily Finn in Dartmouth yes
1: yeah so. yeah no she's right I mean that that's a perfect example uh with her I mean she's doing this uh. You know, it's funny. There's an example of what she's doing. She's doing naturalistic stimuli. So why would anyone think that naturalistic stimuli and cross-subject correlation looking at individuals is going to work? it just, you know, there's, it's, it's clear that when you, when you make these matrices of cross-subject correlations that there's tons of information there. It's not noise. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah. So I, 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 and she was already going in that direction anyway. Uh, and I've always encouraged her to do that. And she's another one of those postdocs who kind of comes in and uh, just, you know, you sort of step back and let her go and she just cranks. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and she actually does, and she had a very, you know she did the same thing. Like for instance, uh, she's now convinced that pure resting state is less powerful than have, being driven by like naturalistic stimuli. Mm-hmm and that's a real decision and that's sort of based on not any one paper or uh, it's just based on a sense that that i mean she did wrote a paper actually quantifying it afterwards but she had a feeling after working with resting state that this might be a better way in many different ways and so that's an example of that so
0: yeah, yeah. all right so we ha- we have one more question and this one will be a little different so Uh, Give me a second, I think I gotta uh, share my screen. We uh, Ah. actually have have the audio of this one. Oh, great. So uh, I think you'll probably be able to guess pretty quickly who this one is from. Uh, Okay. Peter, while I was working in your section, I remembered that there was this one reoccurring theme and suggestion from you in our group meetings regarding the presentation of our research. You always said, quote, it needs to be extremely clear, unquote, with emphasis on extremely clear. In fact, I can still hear your voice in my head sometimes saying this whenever I'm writing a paper or preparing a talk. Ironically, despite your love for clear science communication, you are researching the most complicated human organ, the brain, with an immensely versatile tool, fMRI. So please share with us your secret of clear science communication. So no matter if it's about books or papers or blog posts or podcasts, you've obviously figured it out. So what's the recipe for explaining complicated things clearly?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, Renzo, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's come up a few times already, but yeah, yeah. I, I just thought that was such a great question, just tackling you know, all of this, all, uh, the science of it, the communication of it. Yeah. So, so how do you wrap up all of these multiple scales and still somehow get around to communicating these incredibly complex questions um, in, in such a clear way?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a really you know that's a really good question. I've always had, and I, and and everyone everyone has their blind spots, and and, and I don't think of myself necessarily as. Having figured it out, um, unlike what, in spite of what Renzo says, I'm still working at it all <laughs> the time. And it's not only being in, it's not only a question of being clear. Uh, you can, one can be very clear, but you, but it's also pitching it uh, to the, to, in the right way to the audience that's most resonant. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if I'm talking to a group of high school students, I can be very clear, but they wouldn't care or know what I'm saying. Um, so it's sort of knowing kind of getting in the heads of the audience. And I usually, when I, when I write, or when I talk, I try to, I try to anticipate who's listening. And, and I try to put myself, really put myself in their position. And, and that helps me a, a lot in terms of not using, you know, I've always was told early on, you know, you know never use jargon words. I even hate abbreviations. I even hate, you know, I even stop even my people at, you know, people who talk to me at the NIH, when they use, when they start using acronyms. I'm like, what does that mean? You know, what is it? You have to clarify everything, and and I usually just base it on my own. Um, Like if I'm reading a paper or listening to talk, I'm like, I don't really know what he's saying there. I don't really, and a lot of people sort of are are more mm-hmm. tolerant of that. They kind of go along and they say, well, I don't really know what he's saying, and and I'm kind of getting a few parts, and but I get I get kind of upset by that. I when I listen to talks where I don't, and this is maybe where it. The only place where I express that is with when my postdocs give talk at a lab meeting. So I stop them and I say, well, you know, what's the context? What you have to start out, you have to lead people by the hand and, and say, you know, everyone's smart, but I mean, nobody should have to work that hard to, uh, to know, you know, what you're doing. And it even helps the person know what they're doing more. If they can actually sit back and do like an Absolutely. elevator pitch. Yeah. And, and, and put it in a context that is digestible and then that forces them to refine their thoughts and clarify their thoughts. So it's important, not only for communicating, but important to to think as well. Kind of an example, I was thinking about this the other day. um, And an example in my mind came to me is that a lot of people's work is really impressive. It's kind of like a it's like a Rube Goldberg machine, if you ever heard of those. They're like, you know, very mm-hmm. detailed, complicated. They're all over the place. And and nobody really knows you, know, you don't really get like a gist of what it's all about. Uh, but then the other extreme, which is even which is, you know, at least as complicated as a Rube Goldberg machine, is is like a, you know, like a like a Tesla car. It's super elegant or like an Apple computer or something like that. Super simple. Uh, but it's really well thought out and, and it's, the experience of it is, you know it's like uh, uh, yeah, it's like it's it's basically like the the ideas were refined and there's extra iterations of actually making it really work um, unlike a really complicated Rube, Rube Goldberg machine, which is you know, impressive, but it's like you don't really get the of where it's going or what it's doing or or how it what the principles are for which it works. So um, yeah and so that so the way i i guess my boiling it down i i basically you know i'd like to think that when i'm listening to talks i like to just think of um i like to put myself in a position of you know the first year graduate student or even somebody who just you know doesn't know the field and is trying to understand the point of this and and what the thought processes are and and it doesn't have to be that complicated. I mean, most questions, most of the, your best science papers or nature neuroscience or whatever, you know, are pretty elegant, simple ideas that it takes work to sort of chisel that down into like, this is the essence of what we're talking about. Um, and then of course the details can be filled in, but if, as long as you have that framework, like what, what are we actually trying to do? What, what's the principle? Then then it helps people think more clearly about it. So I, so yeah, I put myself in, in position where i'm purposely kind of ruthlessly trying to to make it simple keep the purpose in mind refine refine the the objective and also the strategies and and keep us close to you know first principles as opposed to get bogging getting bogged down in the details because a lot of talks start out or even papers start out just throwing tons of jargon out there and you don't even know what what's this paper about what's this talk about and and Mm -hmm. Um, and that's tempting and everyone does it, but I think it's important to get the discipline of actually communicating to to someone who doesn't know, which helps refine it. So, so yeah, I'm, it's, I'm constantly working at that myself. So,
0: yeah. But, but again, it's one of those things that just, you know, the, the act of working on it is just so beneficial and you're right. it, It does take extra effort on behalf of the actual person presenting or, or writing, but just, uh. You know that little bit of extra time thinking about how to boil it down, like you're saying, how to really chisel away and get to the heart of the matter, it just helps everybody and, and yeah. really gets across the message, right? Yes. So So it's it's the presenter's you know responsibility and kindness and uh, job to really get that get to the heart of it and and make other people see why it's important. Yeah. To them or just to the field.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I totally agree. And every once in a while, right. I, I have to give talks to like high school kids. And, you know, one time I gave a talk to my parents are in a retirement home. So all these people who are, you know, 80 and up, it's a very different audience. It's uh, they're all well-educated and very smart, but they're, they're older and they, they're not aware of the field. And so you have to try to get in their heads and how they're thinking what's relevant to them. Uh, it's important. You know, it's having okay. some empathy, intellectual empathy in some sense, uh, uh, yeah and that, not only that after, after giving that talk, I have some additional insights from of my own you know that, that I can bring to my work and that process of doing that is, is a worthy thing to do um, as much as possible.
0: Yeah, that's great. All right, so we can uh, I guess start to wrap it up here. Um, but uh, as as we've heard, first off, just want to thank all of our uh, people who submitted questions. We want to thank uh, Ravi Menon and, and Kevin Murphy and Emily Finn and, and Renta Hooper for for uh, their very insightful questions. Yeah, that was uh, were great. Pre- <laughs> <laughs> We learned a lot about Peter and and and, and about uh, how he approaches science here. But uh, you've you've clearly had a tremendous impact on the field and and on individuals, on on trainees throughout your career, people who have come through your lab and and others in the field who have just, you know, seen your talks or or interacted with you at conferences. So I guess after, you know, 30 years of, of, of this, do you have any Advice for for younger or earlier stage researchers. This is a question that you often pose to uh, your interviewees, uh, so I'm flipping it around on you. Yeah, what advice do you have for for early career, early stage researchers?
1: Um, yeah, that's that's hard. I mean, it's it's easy to be kind of cliche and sort of you know say all the standard things, but um, uh, as far as thinking. Uh, of, of real, of, of helpful advice that I've, at least that I've, I think helpful, um, given to people, uh, you know, a key thing is to, to always make sure you're not losing the forest for the trees, uh, because it's such a complicated field that it's so easy to get sucked into these, you know, like issues of details, which are all important, but it's important to always pull it back and, and to be able to pull back. You have to purposely, you know, read outside your comfort zone, and and listen to talks outside your comfort zone. Another thing, another piece of advice uh, I would give people is like early in their career, um, uh, is that life is kind of malleable. I mean, it, it really is, and and I think that um, uh, uh, there's a lot more uh, opportunity for trying things or. Talking to people or taking on new initiatives, then people realize uh, it's yeah. it's all over the place. It, and the people who are successful are the ones who realize that and make the most of it. Um, so I think that's another thing. Uh, and also early in my career, I uh, uh, never. And this might be good advice. It might be bad advice, uh, but it worked <laughs> for me. Um, I you know, and this people say different things now. And now I I do it differently slightly, but. I, I said, I literally said yes to everything. <laughs> um, um, you know, people, you know, early on, they asked me to give a talk. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll give a talk. And or they asked me to help out with OHBM program committee. Somebody, you know, at some point, you know, I was still a graduate student. My advisor could probably say, oh, you don't have time for that stuff. You don't, you know, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And, and, and all those things really kind of, I mean, when you're young, you should, I think you should be doing that. Uh, <laughs> and as much as you can, as much as you can, uh, you don't typically have other demands and things like that, you know? And one one person once told me, you know, doing a postdoc is like, is like academic nirvana. You don't have to worry about uh, funding. You don't have to worry about all these other things that are burdened, you know, if you're a postdoc and you should be just trying to, trying as many different things as possible and just uh, taking on, you know, as many things as possible, uh, you know, even book chapters. I mean, I wrote a bunch of book chapters when I was in graduate school, which is kind of, many would argue and probably correctly is a, is a, is a waste of time, but, um, but at the same time, I think it also has helped me then write papers using just the, sk- the act of writing. Uh, the, and this is like anything, like uh, taking on book chapters is not just for the chapter, it's for to take on a challenge of writing, that's somehow meaningful. Yeah. Um, and that's the same with the podcast. It's like some people might say, oh, this is a waste of your time. It's definitely not a waste of my time. So hopefully it's helpful and entertaining, but also it helps me uh, get ideas or refine my ability to talk to people. And, and yeah, I, I think that everything, there's benefit that could be reaped from saying yes. Of course, you can get into trouble. Uh, if I say yes to too many things, then some things fall off. And I don't, and I'm not as good at getting everything done. Um, so you have to be smart about it. Eventually. <laughs> so, but that's pretty much that's pretty much it. And also the another key thing, as I mentioned before, don't talk yourself out of uh, trying new ideas. Think, be be don't don't be afraid of being wrong. You know, don't be afraid of uh, it. Just try things and put yourself out there and try ideas and, and 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 talk to people and ask questions um that's so fundamental uh and it's it's an important exercise it's like a discipline to you know it's like brushing your teeth you know it's like there's a things that you just should do as much as possible and and that's that's one of them as well
0: yeah that's great advice wow Peter, I don't know if you have any last words you'd like to. Uh, I think you'll probably have a few more chances to uh, to, to talk to people on this podcast. I, I have a feeling we'll have a few more episodes coming up here. But uh, if there's anything else,
1: uh, no other than uh, I think you did a great job. I think uh, <laughs> this was uh, this you're natural at at, uh, at interviewing. Um,
0: too kind. I, I I I've listened to about forty of these, so uh, you know I'm, I'm just trying to pick up from from where you, uh, where you lead us. So, all
1: right. I, well, one other thing I just want to say is that I, I, you'll know, give me ideas in terms of how to, I'll have to start asking other people about, uh, I like the, it's like, you know, this is your life sort of questions uh, from other people asking them. So that's great. That's, uh, but yeah, I appreciate it. And, and thanks again, Kevin, and uh, look forward to doing many more podcasts. So, all right. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping.
1: This week's episode was produced by Rachel Stickland and Kevin Citek.